Hello everybody and welcome back to the Rising Ecosystems podcast, a new and exciting bi-weekly show that lifts the lid on the world of startup ecosystems. I'm Alex Owen Hunt, FDI's Global Markets Editor, and I'm joined by my co-host. Me, Jesse Bello-Perez, a tech and business journalist and editor of Unleash, which is a new media platform covering the future of work. This is the second episode in our series exploring emerging entrepreneurial ecosystems across the UK. In our first episode, we spoke to two legends of the startup world, Eileen Burbage and Eric van der Klage, about why startup ecosystems matter. If you missed that episode, please do subscribe to the FDI podcast on your preferred platform. It not only helps us a lot, but it means you'll get notified about more of our content in the future. As a teaser, here's a clip from that fascinating conversation in our first episode. But then, as Eric was sort of mentioning, it's also the right thing to acknowledge that the government um, and its attention then on that sector and on that organically developing hub helped to accelerate what was already happening. These concentrations of clusters definitely accelerate super growth. In the second episode, we begin our tour of rising ecosystems across the UK, speaking to people on the ground about what has made their city startup communities so successful. Our first stop on our UK tour is Cambridge, where we take a deeper dive into how the university town has risen to become one of the leading locations for startups in the UK. But Jesse, what do the numbers tell us about Cambridge? Well, Alex, according to Tech Nation's 2020 report, Cambridge was among the top 10 most well-funded European cities in 2019. The city is also home to ARM, the UK chip designer founded in the 1990s, which made headlines last year when US chip giant NVIDIA made a $40 billion bid to purchase it. That's right. But more generally, Cambridge is a hub for many so-called deep tech startups, or those startups providing solutions to fundamental scientific and engineering problems. This has become evident during the COVID-19 pandemic, where laboratories in Cambridge have played a vital role in mapping the evolution of the novel coronavirus. So to dig deeper into the ecosystem, we've invited two prominent members of the Cambridge community to walk us through what has helped them and their ecosystem flourish. Our first guest is Leonie Mook, the Chief Product Officer at Riverlane, a quantum computing startup that's just raised a $20 million funding round. We also speak to Tony Raven, the CEO of Cambridge Enterprise, an organization that is part of Cambridge University that helps commercialize research and enable social enterprise. In our conversation, we explore topics ranging from what makes Cambridge's ecosystem so special, all the way through to the effects of the COVID-19 pandemic and the role of corporates. I started our conversation by asking Tony whether Cambridge used to be an academic ivory tower, and for him to walk us through what led it to become a bustling startup ecosystem. Well, I think it's uh, probably wrong to characterise it actually as, as always having been an ivory tower. The, the mission of the university is not to be the best of the world in research and teaching, but is actually to benefit society through being through the best research and teaching in the world. And I think that's been an important distinction. And then you go right back uh, 500 years ago, uh, the university spun out Cambridge University Press. It was the first publishing house in a world of printers. And why did it do that? Well, basically, publishing was a way to get the knowledge of the university out and shared with society. And there's been lots of uh, activity since then. Uh, Charles Darwin's son, Horace, his youngest son, set up something called Darwin Instruments to supply instruments to the new scientific courses started at 
Cambridge, which became Cambridge Instruments, and his technician then went on to form Pi in the Victorian era. We've had computers, the jet engine, vitamins, all sorts of things going back. So it's always had this ethos of it's not just about the research and teaching, but it's actually about the practical applications of what it learns through that. But how did it get to where it is today? And I think one of the important things to remember is that, uh, as say, we all started from nothing. Um, Cambridge wasn't a, a bustling ecosystem uh, 60 years ago. And uh, people forget that Silicon Valley wasn't a, a bustling ecosystem either. It was actually not a top world top university. It was a middle-ranked regional university in the United States called Stanford, surrounded by fruit orchards. And as uh, Fred Terman, the father of Silicon Valley, said, sort of, uh, when we started, there wasn't much here and the rest of the world looked awfully big. Now a lot of the rest of the world is here. And I think it's important when you're talking about emerging ecosystems to remember that we've just been doing this for a bit longer than most people. But how did it happen? And I think this is true of a large number of places. There was no master plan. And I think a lot of what we do is, as Steve Jobs calls it, joining the dots up, looking backwards. And we can, we can tell a good story. But there were so many serendipitous elements that went into it. So some people point to Tim Alloart, who set up Cambridge Consultants in 1960 to put the brains of Cambridge University at the disposal of British industry. And they've created $3 billion companies out of, out of their dominoes are and Cambridge Silicon Radio. But there are lots of other things that took part. There was a science park that Trinity College built, the first one in the UK. But it wasn't built because they had a passion for doing something entrepreneurial. It was built because the then uh, bursar of Trinity College, Sir John Bradfield, was actually looking to sweat the land assets of the college. And they owned a derelict tank proving ground from World War II. And someone suggested, why don't we put some buildings on there for some of the young scientific companies here? So there was no plan behind it as such. And I think it, um, it's come together through a range of serendipitous elements. And was, were we sort of very good at doing it? Or are we, uh, lots of people tried this, we're one of the ones who were fortunate and are successful. I don't know. But I think there's probably more of a survivor bias to this. We're the one, you're looking at the ones which succeeded. You're not looking at the many which never made it uh, in how we got to where we are today. Well, I just have to say that that's absolutely fascinating, by the way, because um, I didn't actually know the backstory behind how Cambridge University then actually set up Cambridge Press and then it kind of grew. And it really answers one of the questions that Alex and I um, chatted about in the run up to the podcast, which was actually looking at whether the university had strategically decided and planned for this ecosystem to grow, thrive and, and grow around it. Um, so it's actually quite refreshing to hear that it's something that's happened in an organic way. How do you think the university um, has helped to actually commercialise the research? Well, for me, it's gone through essentially three phases. Originally, it didn't want it. Um, remember that IBM wanted to uh, build its European research labs in Cambridge, and we turned them away, and they went to Geneva. But one of the things that came out of that was the university said, was that the right decision? And the Nobel Prize winning physicist Neville Mott 
ran a, a committee that looked at it, and the result of that was a mock report, which said, no, it was the wrong decision. It then went into a period of what I call benign neglect. It didn't do a lot to actively support it, but it didn't get in the way. And there are a lot of things which happened where it would be easy for the university to have said, no, you can't do that. But it let it happen in a very Cambridge sort of way. And lots of things started to develop out of there. And then it moved on from there into where we are today, where it is a very active supporter and engine in this whole system. And we have that through Cambridge Enterprise uh, and our seed funds. You've talked to Andrew at uh, Cambridge Innovation Capital. Uh, we, the university has put its own money behind both ourselves and uh, CIC to be able to actually become cornerstone investors in these companies to make them happen. It would be interesting to get Leone's view on this because from my perspective, uh, the university has skin in the game in these companies and the companies are not just going out to investors and saying, we've got a great idea, would you like to risk your money on it? They're going out and able to say, because we come in very early and say, uh, we've got a great idea. The university thinks it's so great, they're putting their money behind it. Would you like to join them? And I think that changes the whole sort of psychology of that interaction that uh, our companies then have with the investment community. Certainly, I think that's a perfect segue to, to bring Leone into this conversation. I mean, how did the university help you in, in, uh, at Riverlane? And, and maybe you can describe briefly what Riverlane does and, and, and how the ecosystem has helped you in your development. Of course, um, I'd love to. Um, so yes, uh, Riverlane is a uh, quantum software company. Uh, we were founded in 2017 and got seed funding in 2019, about uh, 3.25 million pounds, um, including money from Cambridge Enterprise, so from Cambridge University directly, and from CIC, and from another Cambridge-based investor, Amadeus. Um, so, uh, you know, qu quite a Cambridge-centric venture in that in that respect. And um, certainly the, the university helped a lot in the early phases. As a little disclaimer, I wasn't there. I only joined Riverlane later after, after those early phases. Um, but the first offices were on the premise of the university. The talent came from the university. Uh, the whole uh, brand of the university obviously helps enormously in getting uh, taken seriously. And I think just sort of the entrepreneurial spirit that you have on the campus, especially, uh, you know, in West, West Cambridge, uh, of many, many people actually there uh, thinking about um, commercializing technology, thinking about whether they could be founders um, really, really helped Riverlane uh, in, the, in the very early stages. I just want to um, touch very quickly on the kind of funding aspect, because um, I know, Leone, you said that clearly uh, um, Riverlane as a startup has benefited greatly from local investors. But is there actually a push to uh, fundraising locally um, or is there actually a need for startups to look further afield when it comes to um, Series A funding? Because I imagine the seed funding is readily available in the local startup ecosystem. But what happens once you start looking at Series A and Series B? Um, yeah, that's a very good point. Um, yes, seed funding is one thing, then getting Series A and Series B is another. Um, we are so lucky in Cambridge to have great local investors with the sort of contacts and networks 
that uh, get us introductions to, you know, the big international uh, uh, funds, the London-based funds, the Silicon Valley funds, um, so we can raise big rounds um, if we have a good idea and traction and can show all of the milestones that we've achieved uh, for Series A. So this is, hel- this is helping a lot. This is helping Revelane a lot uh, at the moment. I actually want to pick up on the talent aspect that, Leona, you mentioned, the fantastic talent that is in Cambridge, clearly a world-class university renowned for the research it's doing. I want to bring you back in, Tony. I mean, one of the big problems that some of the rising or emerging ecosystems have is retaining the talent. And clearly Cambridge is full of fantastic talent, but maybe some of that talent is magnetized to the bigger hubs like London, like Silicon Valley, or to to, to large companies rather than necessarily being entrepreneurial in the original ecosystem. Is that something you agree with? And and perhaps the, the question really is, how do you keep talent in Cambridge after after they, they've uh, they've been at uni- at the university, well, Cambridge is a rather nice place to be. And if you're in this field, it is such a vibrant atmosphere with uh, and community that uh, you're part of, which um, really makes it a great pleasure to be there. I think the important thing, though, is not to think about sort of whether it's Cambridge or London or Silicon Valley. It's about where is the best place for the company to be, for what it wants to do. We're not great at everything. So it, it's making sure that sort of the first thing is, is where the company should be. But I think there, there are some, some factors about uh, keeping the talent. And if you look at the work of Michael Cohen out of UC Berkeley on this, one of the things he has found is that the successful ecosystems actually attract the talent and they stay. So a lot of the early companies were people that came to university at Cambridge and then didn't want to leave Cambridge, so hung around and found something to do. And that's developed over time into what we have at the moment, which is an ecosystem where people stay, they move around, they've got plenty of jobs, they can move from one company to another, they can start their own, and all of those things. The other thing is, is making it easy and making sure that all the support systems are there. We have a great mentor network in all the successful entrepreneurs that have grown up in Cambridge. But one of the things, again, out of Michael Cohen's work is the successful ones are decentralized. And I do like to describe Cambridge as creative chaos because it is very Darwinian. All of these things are supplied by bottom-up sort of, oh, I can see an opportunity there to do something to support this. Let's have a go at it. It's why we have two student enterprise societies, not one. Well, I suppose that's a case in point that actually Cambridge has been very successful at retaining its talent. And the only from your perspective, I mean, did you, you decided to come to Cambridge? So I suppose it has been successful at magnetizing fantastic talent like yourself to the ecosystem. So maybe, maybe you could discuss a bit about what attracted you to the ecosystem. I moved to the UK from Germany <laughs> after my PhD um, to start uh, working um, not in the Cambridge ecosystem, but uh, for a scientific journal called Nature, actually based in London, and lived in Cambridge um, only because, well, my now husband had a job at the university as a postdoc. Um, so, uh, um, and after a while of commuting, <laughs> I didn't want to move to London ever. Cambridge is such a nice place to live. Um, it has everything that you'd ever want, <laughs> maybe except opera. I love opera. Um, but uh, uh, even that you sometimes get uh, through the cinema, etc. 
after a while, it was never a question that I would want to move out of Cambridge. And um, I was very attracted by the startup scene here in Cambridge. I mean, the startup scene in London is great too. Um, but um, what what I'm fascinated by is kind of deep tech, very research heavy uh, um, startups uh, and work. And and um, Cambridge is just incredibly incredibly vibrant in this way. I'm not saying it's singular. You know, I think the Oxford ecosystem is probably quite similar, actually. Um, and um, it's uh, well, I was so lucky to to join River Lane um, at a point where it was just growing, just kind of starting out and expanding. And the support and the sort of uh, mentorship you get here in the ecosystem through other, um, you know, other chief product officers working at other startups, uh, going through similar uh, through similar questions, um, is a, is a great learning opportunity. Um, the thing about Cambridge is that. Everyone knows everyone else, <laughs> probably. Uh, it's it's very familiar. It's you know, usually anyone else really is is just a little walk away or a cycle. Right now, it's more like a phone call or a Zoom call. But um, I guess that's what, at the end of the day, has uh, made me stay in Cambridge. <laughs> I think you've both definitely tempted uh, me to actually move to Cambridge. I think I've been in London far too long and everybody watching from home, uh, sorry, everybody listening from home won't be able to see Tony's amazing virtual background, which is a picture of um, one of the Cambridge canals, which looks pretty beautiful and far better than my view out of um, my West London flat. Um, but having said that, and given the fact that I do have a mortgage and I'm probably stuck in London for a while, I just wanted to touch on something which um, we were talking about in terms of talent. And I think it's so great um, to hear you, Leone, describe the Cambridge ecosystem. I think it's always far more powerful when somebody that's embedded in, in that atmosphere is able to like vocalize what it's really like. And, you know, the community of support and knowledge sharing is so important in, in the tech industry. And I know it happens here to an extent in London as well, but, you know, the scene is a lot bigger and I think it can be a lot easier to get lost um, through the noise. But I know we touched on talent briefly, but I really would love to hear from you in terms of what it's really like um, for you to hire as a company in Cambridge. Um, and, you know, quantum computing, like you said earlier, is very niche, um, which is fantastic, but also very research based. So when it comes to growing teams, are you looking at Cambridge University specifically? Are you looking to snap people up from other universities further afield? And, you know, what options are out there for you? Yeah, um, I mean, the talent pool in Cambridge is obviously amazing, not only the people that come from the university, but also uh, the experience you get from people that previously worked at the likes of Arm or DisplayLink. Um, we um, do try to hire from the university and in all fairness, we've actually not been that successful at it. Uh, most of the people that we've hired came from further afield. Um, from um, all over the UK and all over Europe. Um, um, so um, while the university plays, I think, a big role, uh, you know, in, in, in the talent pool, you know, at Riverlane, this hasn't, hasn't checked out yet for, for whatever reason. But um, so what is obviously important in terms of uh, getting this talent and having this talent move to Cambridge is that it is a very nice place. <laughs> it's a great place. Um, if you need to relocate, um, even if, you know, 
after some years uh, of working at Revelain or another startup, you decide it's time to move on. There's so many options here, right? So I think on the micro level, this really plays a big role in people's decisions as to whether or not um, to, to go work for Revelain. The, the location is definitely a plus. Exactly. Antonio, from your perspective, I wonder whether you can give us a little bit of insight in terms of, you know, is it a case of Cambridge having to remain competitive in the job market if all these startups and amazing scale-ups and established tech companies are looking to the university to try and snap talent? Is there any kind of brain drain that you're experiencing now or have done so throughout the years? You mean from Cambridge elsewhere or within Just, between the university and the ecosystem? Within the university and the ecosystem, whether that's, you know, uh, on a local level, but also people um, looking to leave because, um, well, my experience from interactions with, with founders is that ultimately, you know, universities are such hotspots for, um, for tech talent. And when you have a university um, as established and renowned as Cambridge, the talent that's within the actual university itself is, you know, second to none. Um, academia can be an incredibly rewarding uh, profession, I imagine, but I also think sometimes startups, particularly the ones that are VC-backed, are able to offer um, attractive you know, salary packages, compensation, et cetera. So I just wonder how the two elements play against each other or do they work collaboratively? I think it, I think it sort of uh, works well together, actually, because uh, Cambridge University, for people coming to Cambridge University, the existence of the ecosystem and the ability to interact with it and be part of it is, is a major attractor. It's not wanting to come here for the ecosystem isn't something the university puts as a recruitment uh, criteria, but it's certainly an attractor in getting people to come here. And then the other part of it, and it goes back to this sort of people staying around, um, we have a very large postdoc community who are sort of working in the labs, uh, really are the people who are at the lab bench doing a lot of the uh, technology development. And with the best will in the world, the majority of them uh, will not go on to have an academic career that they aspire to. But this provides opportunities both for them to sort of take what they're doing on the lab bench and create their own career, their own company, or to go and join one of the companies out there uh, around Cambridge while not having to leave this beautiful city in which they uh, live and want to stay. Yeah, I mean, I know from friends and, and close family members that are involved in that work, like academia is incredibly competitive in its in itself, right? Um, and it's also very cutthroat in the sense that you're very much, I don't want to say pressured, I want to use the word inspired um, to find innovative theories and research and kind of take um, technologies and innovation to the next level. I'd like to bring the conversation to really uh, the focus of the Cambridge ecosystem itself on a sectoral basis. Leonie, you've talked about the deep tech and the research-led type innovation and companies that are coming out there. Of course, you're in the quantum computing space. Um, now, as we sit doing this podcast remotely, unfortunately, rather than in person, that is very much because of COVID and that COVID has had a massive impact on all sorts of startup sectors. But in some way, research-led uh, probably more deep tech, maybe has, has been rather less scathed by the pandemic than, than other forms of consumer facing and business to business type models, uh, business models. I mean, what, what's your take, Tony, to bring you in here of the impact of COVID on this Cambridge ecosystem? 
Well, it's obviously had an enormous uh, impact and uh, focus of activity here because during the first lockdown, all the labs were closed down. Uh, everyone's effort is 24-7 uh, focused on how we uh, respond to this, both for the student community and their education and futures, and also for the research which goes into uh, how we're dealing with the pandemic. But one of the curious things, I, I was expecting um, at the beginning of this that uh, we would see a big hit on our activity. People would be too distracted, uh, other priorities, etc. But uh, that's not what we found. And in fact, uh, the level of activity uh, went on very much as before. And we had prepared all our companies for a 12-month winter of uh, fundraising stopping, uh, but that hasn't happened. Uh, fundraising is going on with external investors as much as it ever was before. I'm not sure why it is, but uh, that's an observation. And uh, talking to my colleagues in the United States and the rest of the UK, that's a pretty common observation. About 90% of us are seeing levels of activity which are the same or more than they were in the pre-pandemic times. So. Um, things seem to be really active and moving on. So I suppose that in that sense, the, the ecosystem has probably been affected in, in ways that you weren't ex expecting, perhaps. In some ways, it has had a massive impact, but in other ways, actually, it's, it's sort of accelerated some of the research that's going on in Cambridge. Leone, how's COVID impacted what you're doing at River Lane and, and what's your impression of its impact on the ecosystem? Yeah, COVID obviously has been difficult to deal with for everyone. Um, however, at Riverlane, we are so lucky that we're a software company. Uh, we can work remotely. We don't have to have access to a lab, for example, which at certain times during the pandemic was difficult. Um, and so for us, it's actually sort of forced us in some ways to be more organized, to be more structured. Uh, um, and there's there's a silver lining between all the difficulty. Um Regarding the ecosystem, I mean, something that I really want to bring up is that uh, for, for families with small children and any founders that have families or any uh, entrepreneurs and employees of startups with children, this has been an incredibly difficult time um, just because schools were closed, um, uh, daycare, nurseries were closed for, for, for a while. Um, and uh, we, we know that this disproportionately affects women, right? So uh, I am I'm quite worried about the impact of COVID uh, on kind of uh, the the participation of of women uh, sort of in the startup ecosystem very generally because it is a very demanding thing to do um, and uh, if everything else around you falls apart in, in particular childcare uh, it makes it very very difficult. I am so glad you brought that up, Leone. I think you're probably the third person today that I've had that conversation with uh, as a woman myself, but I don't have children. Um, I have a lot of friends who do, and um, they're all using Instagram at the moment to vent about the fact that, you know, that they've essentially had to become uh, full-time employees as well as full-time teachers overnight, some of whom are really struggling with um primary school fractions. I know I would. Um, I've definitely forgotten all my maths from back in the day. Um, and I think that's a really, really important point to bring up. I think, you know, we spoke about this in the first episode of the podcast. Uh, COVID-19 has highlighted 
um, the importance of mental health and the need for barriers to really be broken down between employees, colleagues, um, both at home um, with on a personal level, but also like on a professional um, level. And as we know, technology um, as an industry already has a huge diversity problem, right? Um, so I'm also like you concerned to see how things play out as a result of the pandemic and whether we're going to see um, less women because you know it's it's so demanding startups like you rightly said aren't a nine-to-five job and um i think sometimes people get distracted by the whole notion of startups having you know pool tables and and bean bags and it's a relaxing uh, and chilled out atmosphere where i know for a fact i've worked in several it's anything but <laughs> so um i'm really glad you brought that up um but if we go and survey the ecosystem again and look at it like a bird's eye view We've touched on stuff like talent. Um, we've touched on stuff like fundraising and how seed and I imagine angel funding is readily available. But as businesses scale, there's also the need to potentially look further afield to fundraise. Um, I just wonder from both of you, um, you know, based on those conversations, what are the other kind of strengths um, and disadvantages um, for people uh, working in the Cambridge startup ecosystem. Um, and Leonie, since you had the floor last, I'll go with you again and then we'll pass it over to Tony. So, I mean, when I think about the advantages or disadvantages of the Cambridge ecosystem, I'm not actually sure that, you know, from me, from my industry perspective, it's such a, it, it's a, it's a good comparison to make, for example, Cambridge versus Oxford, I think, you know, <laughs> there's, there's, pluses and minuses, advantages and disadvantages. Um, for us, especially in the, in the quantum computing industry, I would, I would actually go you know, and compare potentially the UK ecosystem or the European ecosystem uh, with, uh, for example, the American or the Chinese ecosystem. Um, and um, in, in that regard, I mean, the UK is pretty amazing for quantum uh, computing and quantum technology startups at the moment. There's a lot of government funding available, uh, very generally, um, and a lot of um, collaboration, which is very, very important, I think, in deep tech generally, a very collaborative atmosphere to really tackle the important and the, the, you know, the, the pressing problems that a specific industry has. And quantum computing, believe me, has enough of pressing problems <laughs> to solve uh, um, uh, you know, research and R&D heavy problems. Um, and that the, the great thing about Cambridge is obviously it's quite close to many of the other hubs uh, in the UK, for example, London or Oxford, where some of the startups um, that we work with, uh, that we partner with to solve some of these problems reside. Um, so we keep joking that we really want this train line to Oxford to be reinstated quickly <laughs> because we would really benefit uh, from it. So in terms, of, in terms of the advantages and the comp competition, if you will, I actually see it as a big uh, you know, ecosystem of maybe ecosystems, uh, at least from my perspective, from the quantum technologies perspective. That's really interesting. And I think it's often important, like as a journalist, I've totally been guilty of this, right? In terms of like putting ecosystems up against each other and looking at what's good in Oxford, what's good in Glasgow. And that's something that obviously Alex and I are going to be exploring throughout the whole season in terms of like zooming in on specific ecosystems and trying to really get a sense of what's going on everywhere. But Tony, from where you sit, um, what would you like to add? 
Well, just say I agree with Leonie, and we don't really actually look at ourselves as competitive. We work closely with Oxford, with MIT, with Stanford, all these places. We're not in competition with them because we're building on our research, they're building on our, their research, and we're not going to swap that over. Um, so there's a lot of uh, collaboration and cooperation between us. And I think the important thing is, is not the competition, but are we doing the best that we can do with what we've got? And that's really the question I ask myself all the time. Are we making the most of what's here in Cambridge, not how it compares in numbers and everything else with other places? Because I don't think that's important. If you look at what are differences, um, well, I think anywhere in the world you look, you can find places which are different. I mean, Silicon Valley is a much bigger ecosystem than we are, but San Diego is about the same size. Um, you can look at all the other factors and sort of, We've got nothing which is unusual here. I think uh, probably the small characteristics of it are that it is very small. So as the only was saying earlier, it is very well connected. Everybody knows everybody. And they say we're not uh, six removed from anybody we want to connect to, but two removed in Cambridge because of that. And the, the one I like about it, which is one of our successful entrepreneurs said, was that Cambridge is a safe place to do risky things. A, a lot of the European culture is, is about sort of uh, failure and the, the stigma of failure. And Cambridge has a real attitude that failure is something you learn from. Okay, you fell off your horse, let's dust you down, get you back on and, and off you go. And I think that is a real characteristic of Cambridge, which I think uh, helps uh, what we're doing here. I'm just going to chime in one more time, just because you said something that I'm really excited by, and then I'm going to pass it on to Alex, who I know is also keen to get some airtime with you both. I think that is very key. Like the whole notion of failure is something that, um, in my coverage as a journalist throughout the years, people have often looked at the American way of approaching it, right? And and there it's almost like celebrated and it should totally be um, that way. And even now within my remit of covering the future of work, HR and recruitment, and looking at leadership within companies specifically, um, I think there's a real push um, to get leaders to actually allow teams and, and colleagues and um, and employees to fail, because ultimately that's really the only way that we're going to continue innovating, right? Like you rightly said, you, it goes wrong, you dust yourself off and you get up again and you get on with it. So I'm really glad that that's also something that is um, that is being celebrated in Cambridge, because I think it's really important if the UK tech in industry as a whole is going to um, continue growing. Certainly. And this process of iteration is fundamental to driving forward new solutions and innovation. And, and Cambridge really is an exemplar of that. And arguably, the greatest example of Cambridge's success in this regard is ARM, which of course is the UK chip designer founded in the 1990s, has grown to be a very successful corporation and is still based in Cambridge. Now, I spoke recently to Andrew Williamson, who is the managing director at Cambridge Innovation Capital, a venture capital fund based in Cambridge that is an investor in River Lane, involved with Cambridge Enterprise and is a, a large has a large presence within the ecosystem. Now, Andrew discussed the role of corporates in developing Cambridge, and this is what he had to say. When you talk about the development of the ecosystem, I said it's sort of ground up and it starts with the small businesses. For me, the sort of the final piece in the puzzle that sort of meant that we're now at critical scale was the emergence of these large corporates 
uh, operating here in Cambridge. And Arm was the first and is the largest, but, but you should also think about Cambridge Silicon Radio, which was instrumental in Bluetooth, has been acquired by Qualcomm, and so Qualcomm has a large presence here. And then all of the other more recent American companies I talked about. And what you want to create is this sort of virtuous circle of coexistence between uh, small startups and, and the large corporates, where you know a business spins it out at the university, um, we finance it, help it grow to the point where it maybe does some business with one of these large corporates, maybe it gets to a scale where eventually one of it, it is acquired by one of them, or maybe they they co-invest with us. They will have corporate venturing arms as well to help and help it grow. Mm. But they do acquire some businesses. Some of those employees will go into those businesses, work for a few years in a large company, get very valuable experience of what it's like to be in, in, in Google, for example, versus in a, in a startup. But quite often they get bored of that and then they come out and then they start another business. That's a brilliant, as I was referring to earlier, sort of serial entrepreneur who's now been on both sides. And we would love to back that person in their next business. And the circle goes around and around. And we've really only had that in in Cambridge or in sort of the UK in the last three or four years. So, Tony, having heard that, I mean, what, what's your take? Do you think corporates play a vital role within the startup ecosystem in Cambridge? Oh, absolutely. And I think sort of we're also going through sort of a phase of maturity now, which uh, ecosystems move into, which is that what's going on here, the exciting young companies which are being created all the time are attracting in the big corporates. So that's why we've got Apple here and Amazon and AstraZeneca. Uh, it's because there's a lot of interest here. And, and that then forms a sort of a sort of virtuous circle of they input uh, from the big corporate view into the small companies. They become acquirers, supporters, um, engage in many different ways uh, and become part of the Cambridge community. Um, when people ask me sort of what's the best way to engage with Cambridge, I always, I always tell them you have to move here because you actually have to immerse yourself in that uh, community that uh, Leone talked about, that sort of vibrant, exciting community, because it, it, it is those uh, personal interactions which uh, drive everything that happens here. And uh, that's what we're finding with a lot of companies. Cambridge is the place to come to because uh, they immerse themselves in this vibrant sort of uh, community, which is actually creating the future. And I'm, I mean, a big part of this Rising Ecosystems project that we've launched at FDI Intelligence is to bridge the gap between the economic development you get from larger companies, more established uh, legacy players and the younger companies. Jobs are being created in both. There's, there's synergies to be found through collaboration. And Cambridge is clearly a, a fantastic case in point of that. Leonie, I'd love to bring you in here. I mean, how have you interacted with corporates in the Cambridge ecosystem, if you have or if you haven't? Um, and what do you see the value of, of the presence of corporates within a startup ecosystem? Um, yeah, I think there are two things that I would like to bring up. One is that obviously for the talent pool, it's great. It's incredible uh, to have people with the experience of working at Arm or at Microsoft Research or at Amazon um, here, bringing some of that um, culture, you know, uh, and that sort of experience also into a startup. That's that's very, very valuable. Um, and the second thing is that we, so River Lane, actually does partner with uh, two uh, Cambridge-based uh, corporates, Arm. Uh, we have a project with them and Hitachi, which has a lab out of the Cavendish. 
Um, and this has been very, very, very helpful, I have to say. Um, ARM's experience in sort of working with standards and standardization has been incredibly useful for this whole quantum computing uh, project uh, where we are lacking standards uh, and where we, you know, we're still, you know, cottoning on to how to deal with them or how to how they might emerge um, from activity. So this has been very, very helpful. And um, and uh, it, it's also been helpful in obviously making introductions in, you know, getting uh, uh, getting better networks um, and in um, helping sort of share experiences with what works uh, at um, or at Hitachi in terms of, you know, how you structure uh, projects or, um, ha you know, engineering teams, et cetera, et cetera. So these direct partnerships have also been very, very helpful. Um, to say, just to say uh, that um, these, uh, to the point I was making earlier about the UK being an ecosystem for quantum technologies, these uh, partnerships have been facilitated by government funding, right? We, we've, uh, we've been able to... Um, to sustain these partnerships through uh, Innovate UK funding specifically. Um, so this has been very helpful in kind of creating a framework for those partnerships to work. I'm very glad you uh, touched on that, the, the role of the public sector. We have focused much of our attention in this podcast episode discussing the role of academia and, and the funding that can come from that sector. But of course, uh, in our first episode, we were exploring what sort of public-private partnerships there can be and, and organizations such as uh, Tech Nation and, um, and sort of accelerators seen in London that were very successful um, through that collaboration, the right sort of policy framework. Now, we've touched a lot on the collaboration you can see between corporates, between the academic sector and the startups themselves. And fundamentally, those corporates will have moved to Cambridge, perhaps either to get access to the research, the talent pool, uh, or the, the, the existing exciting startups in the ecosystem. So I suppose, to my interpretation of that, there's an alignment between the startup ecosystem development and the sort of inward investment strategy. I, I wonder if you could touch on that at all, Tony. What, where is there alignment between the development of the ecosystem and companies moving to Cambridge? Well, I think you have to recognize companies like Armour, we grew ourselves and the, you won't get the move-ins until you are a much more mature and substantial ecosystem. So you shouldn't, Cambridge didn't have those to start with. You shouldn't, for those of you who are looking at sort of building ecosystems or in the early stages, it's a nice to have, but it's not an essential. The important thing is that you get things growing, you start building these companies, start building a community, which then becomes attractive and attracts the interest. So uh, why is Apple here? It's because um, we have a, a great uh, track record in spoken dialogue systems. Uh, most people don't know that Alexa was born in Cambridge and acquired by Amazon, which is why Amazon's here, not only doing Alexa, but now also because of what's in the university doing research on its uh, delivery drones. So these things sort of grow organically, but they're, they're attracted by something which is going on, which uh, companies are interested in. And that's what I say, we're going through a phase of, we grew our own, and then that became, became a very attractive uh, thing for the bigger companies looked at that and thought uh, we need to have some uh, activity, some presence in Cambridge. So we're on the inside track of where the future is coming from. 
Leone and Tony, it's been an absolute pleasure. We had our first episode, we had Eric and Eileen, which we then transferred into E Squared. I think we've got the Onis this episode, which fits fits quite nicely. So, but seemingly there's 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 a similarity between the names of our guests that we're uh, we're bringing onto this podcast. But thank you so much for exploring uh, the Cambridge ecosystem with us, or taking us uh, on a whistle stop tour and uh, giving your experiences. It's been fascinating. Um, any closing thoughts you want to give to our listeners? Um, well, I think Cambridge is worth a visit and worth a stay. I've been here for seven years <laughs> uh, and uh, enjoying every minute of it. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I'd invite every listener to, to check it out for themselves. And uh, yeah, thank you very much for having me today. It was a pleasure. Yeah, it's been a fantastic pleasure to be on here today. And the thing I'd say to everyone listening is this is very important. Um, and it's also very exciting if you just look at what we're going through in the pandemic at the moment and the way that uh, Oxford with its vaccine is changing the world, that the genomic sequencing which came out of Cambridge is playing a central role in, in uh, tracking what's happening and the emergence of new variants and all the rest. I mean, this is important stuff that uh, the universities are creating and that the ecosystems are then making sure is available for the world to benefit from. So you're doing important stuff, everyone out there listening, and keep at it. It's not easy all the time, but then if it was easy, anybody could do it. I love that. Let's celebrate science and innovation. And I think in an age of fake news and a lot of turmoil, whether political or social, I think that's such a great um, message to finish off. Um, just from my side, thank you so much. I've definitely learned a lot, and it's been a pleasure to chat to you both today. Well, Jesse, what a conversation that was. I think we took a sufficient deep dive into the Cambridge ecosystem. And a few things really stood out for me in that conversation. Firstly, I think there was no plan in the actual ecosystem's development. There was very much organic growth. Uh, and, and that really should be inspirational to any nascent rising ecosystems out there. Also, we explored the historical elements, the Cambridge being the home to the first science park in the UK, uh, and really then also coming to the present, the mentorship that the ecosystem is providing uh, its members. We only talked about how everyone knows everyone. It's a close-knit community, and it really seems like a, a, an exciting place to be in the startup world. What, what sort of things stood out for you in the conversation? Yeah, I think you pretty much hit the nail on the head there. I think um, for me, the biggest thing was actually um, changing my perception of, of Cambridge as an ecosystem in the sense that I think it's super easy to get intimidated by the caliber of the talent and also the academic institutions. But actually, um, you know, going off by what Leonie was saying, it seems to be a place where people are happy to knowledge share, collaborate, work together and ultimately kind of bolster innovation to the next level, which I think is fantastic. Certainly. And in that vein, of course, Cambridge has been at the forefront of some of the developments during the pandemic and very much active in the life sciences sector. And I know that you have a column in the upcoming FDI Intelligence magazine. Could you maybe explain a little bit for listeners what they can expect from your upcoming column? 
I am so excited. Anybody that listened to our first episode would know that I'm absolutely obsessed with health tech. Um, so I'm totally in my element. And the piece is looking at how health tech ecosystems are spreading across the world, as in, you know, what kind of ingredients do they need to have in place for these ecosystems to first emerge and then thrive? Um, you know, using Cambridge, obviously, as a, as a case study, but looking at innovation elsewhere and also having a look at where investors are investing. Very exciting stuff. I'm very much looking forward to reading your column, Jesse. But in this podcast series, we also have more for listeners to look forward to. In our next episode, we are traveling up the M1 in the UK to Leeds to explore what is happening in that startup ecosystem. So lots of exciting elements to explore further up north in the UK. For any of you that have made it this far, thank you very much. We would love to hear from you. Any feedback and any suggestions for future episodes, please do engage with us on Twitter or LinkedIn at FDI Intelligence using the hashtag Rising Ecosystems. Please do also subscribe so you'll get access to more episodes in the future on your preferred podcast platform. Thank you all for listening and we'll see you in two weeks time. Here at Bellingcat, we get to the bottom of things. From a global crisis to an underreported event, we find the facts using publicly available tools and resources, uncovering what is hidden on and below the surface. We connect the dots using social media posts, satellite images, and public records, and empower others to do the same by sharing how we do it. The ability to do so is only made possible by our readers, supporters, and community members. Care to join us? Learn how at bellingcat.com.